are going to continue uh, into week 16 is where we are in the uh, journey through the, the book of Acts. Um, and the common thread, uh, the common banner that we've seen flying over this entire book, we saw that happen uh, in the very first week that we opened up, and we've been seeing it just about every week since, is that um, the, the, this, this thread, this common thread that r- runs through the entire story is that the early church, uh, despite opposition, uh, carries the gospel. It, it, it advances the gospel uh, it, right there in Jerusalem and into Judea and, and out into Samaria and to the ends of the earth, just like uh, Jesus said it would. Uh, and so we're seeing that kind of play out and take place, and, and there's opposition every step of the way. Um, and, and let me just say this, if, if anyone's ever done any church history reading or anything like that, one of the things that's uh, pretty interesting to know is that it's been proven time and time again uh, that gospel advancement will usually accelerate at the fiercest moments of persecution. You see that throughout the entire uh, history of the church. Uh, and it's only whenever the church kind of kicked it in cruise control, got a little comfortable, got the temperature set right, um, not, at, not doing a whole lot, that it declined and that nothing really happened, that the gospel didn't advance. Um, up until 2011, um, the, the gospel was advancing the fastest and none other than Syria, which was completely opposed to the gospel, was a closed country until they entered into the, the civil war that they're now, they now find themselves in. Uh, that's where the gospel was advancing the most. Fierce persecution. Christians were hated. The church was not allowed. The gospel was not uh, able to publicly be preached. Yet that was where Christianity was spreading um, mo- most rapidly. Isn't that something to, to consider? And so when we arrive in our passage today, the church has proven to the whole watching world, to everyone uh, who's, who's standing by, that it doesn't matter if it's tribulation, it doesn't matter if it's distress, it doesn't matter if it's persecution, it doesn't matter if it's famine, if it's nakedness, if it's sword, if it's danger, it doesn't matter. Nothing's going to separate them from the love of Jesus and the advancement of the gospel. Nothing will stop it. They're trying at every turn to snuff it out, and it only continues to grow and grow and grow. And we've seen at this point uh, in the book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 9, so if you want to get a head start and get there, we're going to start in chapter 9 today. Uh, what we've seen up to this point is that there's, there's been opposition that has come from the outside. From you've, had, you've got the religious leaders and you've got the zealous uh, Jews who, who, who are opposing Jesus and they're hard-hearted. Uh, uh, but you've also seen where, where opposition happened within the church itself, with church disunity and, and, and deceit. You saw Ananias and, and Sapphira when they, when they kind of brought their, their offerings uh, to, to the feet of the apostles and they withheld and they, they, they held back and, and they said, this is everything we, we, we've, we've been given and we're giving it all to the church. And they were trying to make a name for themselves. They were trying to, 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 to get some popularity, some garner some, some support in the church. And then they, obviously, uh, that was not taken so well. And so that was kind of opposition toward the church and it came internally. You would also see racism spring up in the church that was an internal opposition to the, to the advancement of the gospel, that, that, that this class of people were being preferred over this class of people. And so the church had to address that. All the while, the church is continuing to grow. It's continuing to expand. It's, it's, the gospel is continuing to, to move forward. But today, what we're going to see is to, how the gospel advances from a whole different angle. Um, and, and might I say this, that it, it might here advance against probably the most extreme opposition, and that's the human heart. 
You see, like the gospel had, had, it had external opposition coming in. It had people from within the church. But then there's this idea of the individual human heart that, that is probably the strongest opposition to the gospel. Matter of fact, it takes the power of God himself to break the opposition to the gospel in the human heart. And so we're going to see that today in our text. And so if you're with me at, at, at Acts chapter 9, I'm going to pick up in verse 1. And we see this story coming, coming off the... Off the heels of last week when, when we saw uh, um, the, the Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, we, we see this, um, this, this great picture of, of evangelism, how the gospel's preached and how it transforms, um, and, and the, the steps of obedience that happens uh, as, as part of the, the gospel kind of just inundating someone's life. And then verse 1 of chapter 9, but Saul... This was the guy that we met back in, in a couple of chapters before where Stephen was being stoned. Uh, he was not, not in the fun kind of stone way. I'm talking about in the, in the way that you, you die from. Uh, Stephen was being persecuted and killed for his faith uh, and, the, and the testimony that he had. Uh, and that we met this guy Saul where he was obviously a man of great stature and great honor. They were laying their, their coats at his feet as a, as a means to show honor to this guy. And here he picks back up. He's still breathing murderous uh, threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what Christianity was called in the early days. We won't call it that now, and I think there's a cult that's named that now. Men or women, it didn't matter, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I want you to notice, just take notice of how Jesus uh, takes persecution against his church. Notice that he says, you're persecuting me, Saul. It's not a building, you see. It's not a location. It's not a piece of real estate. It's not this abstract idea that, that you're persecuting. It's not this location. But Saul, you're persecuting the very body of Jesus Christ. Why are you doing this, Saul? Jesus has so united himself to his church that they are one and the same. There's no distinction. We are the body of Christ. And so there's no separation between love for Jesus and commitment to the church, and you might be thinking, well, yeah, Blake, well, you're probably preaching to the choir, right? We're all here. So we get the fact that that love for Jesus and commitment to the church are kind of one and the same thing, right? But, but I'm, maybe let me take it a step further that when I say commitment to the church, I'm not talking about a one-hour weekly visit. That's not a commitment to the church. So when I say yes, there's no distinction, there's no separation between love for Jesus and commitment to the church. I want to say based on the Bible, that followers of Jesus Christ should be very, very committed, very, very devoted and involved in the local church. You can't separate the two. If you're not involved in a local church, if you're not committed to the ministry of the local body, do you really love Jesus? And do you really have a passionate love for Him? And if so, let me just say this, man, the church is not your one-night stand. It's not your drive through fast food window. It's a family. It's the body of Christ that we commit to and we care for and we serve and we love with everything. And frankly, I have little tolerance for persistent Christian consumerism. And, and, it's, and it just runs rampant in the world today. 
We see it everywhere. You might be here today because you're looking for something, right? And that's okay. That's okay. We, we, we all need to receive from Jesus. So I get that. But there has to be this moment when you intersect with Jesus that it becomes more about meeting your needs and trying to satisfy your own self. But it comes about committing to, to a family of people, walking, doing life with, with, with people who, who worship Jesus just like you do and, and love Jesus just like you do. And in verse 5 we say, we see it here. And he said, this is Saul saying, who, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So when Saul addresses him as Lord, uh, that's, that's a pretty interesting fact to kind of pick up. He's basically saying, who are you? I would never persecute someone as bright as you. I would never persecute someone with as much power as you. Lord, who are you? And again, Saul would learn that there's really no distinction, no separation between Christ and the church that he's persecuting. And he would later recount this moment when he gets to stand before King Agrippa at the very back of the, the, the book of Acts, we would see in verse 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 12, it says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. He starts telling the story about what's happening today. He says, I had authority and commission of the chief priests, and at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun, and it shone, it shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he inserts something a little bit special that we didn't pick up. He says, Jesus would also say, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. So Paul recounts this, this moment, this interaction that he had with Jesus when he first met Jesus. And what we didn't see, what Luke didn't capture for us in the front end, uh, we pick up here in Saul's dialogue with King Agrippa. And this goad, this idea of a goad, it's not something that we normally would use today, I guess. It may not be a familiar term, but basically this was a big rod that had a point on the end of it. And, and when you were driving ox to, to plow, uh, they would want to kind of veer off to one side or the other, and you would use that goad. It was a long stick, and you would hit them in the back of the leg to kind of get them back on the trail, to get them moving back straight. And any natural reaction to, to anyone prodding you with something like that is to, is to kick at it, to get it out of your way, to move it out of the way. And that's what was going on here. And Jesus would use this when he addressed Saul. And he would say, Saul, I've been prodding you. I've been hitting you with this goad. I've been, I've been trying to drive you in this direction. Why, Saul, do you continue to kick at it? It's, it's a hard thing, isn't it, Saul? You've been kicking at it, Saul. You've been trying to avoid it. You've been trying to ignore it. You've been trying to get it out of your way. You tired yet, Saul? You're ready to give in yet, Saul. And here he would say this, and then he would say, you're fighting, you're kicking, it's just, it's, you're doing it against me. You're kicking against the one who, who blinds you, one who you address as Lord when you meet me. That's the one who you're kicking against. And not only that, it would get to a point where he would say, it's hard. It, it means that, that Saul is getting more and more ferocious. He's kicking harder and harder. He's, he's getting more and more violent. And so what was Jesus prodding Saul with? What is the goad that, that, that Jesus was using in, in Saul's life? Well, we picked up on it first when we saw the, the execution of, of Stephen. 
right? He's there. He sees this thing go down. He hears, he hears this speech from Stephen that pretty much recounts the entire Old Testament history. And Stephen's whole point is to say, you guys hold so fast to this, you bunch of religious jerks, you, you stick so close to this, and you hold on so close to this, but none of you follow it. You don't really abide by the law that you protect so much. And all of these temples and all of these other things that you feel like God's, you got, to cut it, you got him in this box, and, and that's where he belongs, and, and, and I'm, I'm here to tell you, you none of you have, have shown honor. And he was going on and on and telling the, the historical reality of the Old Testament. And then he would go on to say, enter Jesus. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what the gospel is, man. And you guys have had this, you've had blinders on the whole time. And Jesus was just, he was in front of you. And, and rather than, than receive him by faith, you executed him. Saul was listening to this account. Saul was there in the presence of Stephen with, with all of the other teachers and all of the other leaders when he was standing and giving account. And not only that, not only that, his face was lit up like an angel, right? And so even if Saul felt like he was completely out of line, that Stephen was completely out of line for, for saying these things, that he was completely off base, he couldn't deny the fact that heaven was shining on his face, that he had a face like an angel. And so that's obviously Saul's like, that's possibly one goad that Jesus was using. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I don't, this guy could be right. I don't know. If that didn't do it, Stephen's last breath, he would echo what his Savior said. Receive me, Father. Forgive these men. These ones who are, who are murdering me right now, forgive them. There's something going on there. Like Jesus is using that moment. Not only that, but, but Saul was, his, his hobby was persecuting Christians. And Stephen was just one in a thousand who had the same characteristic, the same DNA as other brothers and sisters who would gladly give their life away for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that would love their enemy even until the end, whenever they would breathe their last, they would say, Father, forgive them. They're blind. They have no idea what's going on. They don't know what they're doing. So if nothing else, Saul did encounter that. And Jesus would say, hey, there's, I've been prodding you, Saul. You've been walking this road. You've been doing these things. And all along the way, you've had hesitation after hesitation. And that's me working in your life. That's me prodding you. And the more and more you, you turn away from it, the more and more you kick, the more fierce, the more persecution breaks out. And now you're on your way to Damascus. You're, you're, going, you're going north, right? You're leaving Jerusalem. You're going outside of the city. You're headed that direction. Well, guess what, Saul? I got an Ethiopian unit. Guess where he's headed? He's headed south. You're not going to kill the gospel. You're not going to stop the movement of the gospel. You're going in the wrong direction. There's, there's believers there. The gospel has gone there. And the gospel's going south. It's spreading. And Saul, you're not going to be able to kill it. And all of these, all of these would be a means of grace for Saul. They would end up being grace for Saul. Everything that he would see and be a part of would, would be a means of grace that Jesus would use to prod him. To just try to turn him in that direction. To just show him his glory. Show him his beauty. And in verse 7, chapter 9, it says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Isn't conversion like a funny thing? 
It's a funny thing that, 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 it, that happens during conversion. That like People all around you, maybe even in this room today, you're going to hear something that is so powerful that just kind of goes straight to your heart and someone else on the side of you just kind of be indifferent to it. They heard the same words. They heard the same song. They sung the same songs. They heard the same gospel. They saw the same Jesus. But something happens, right? Because conversion's funny that way. It sounds like words to them, but yet, yet you would hear the very words of God spoken into your heart. And that's how it works. In verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He was blind, basically, and so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So picture it. Saul, this mighty man of stature, powerful, honorable, had a lot of influence, on his knees before Jesus Christ. Because that's what Jesus does. That's the kind of honor he, he deserves and requires. The one who thought he had it all figured out. The one who thought he knew all the religious jargon. He knew all the right words to say. He memorized all the right verses. He saw it all so clearly now. He is blind and having to be led by the hand. Jesus will mess up everything you think you know about him when you meet him. And in verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. That's the right response, by the way, whenever God approaches you. Whatever you want. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hand, his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all those, all who call on your name. So let me interpret that maybe in today's context. Ananias says, say what? Would you say? Like, but Lord, um, you don't have to tell me the man, uh, the guy uh, from Tarsus named Saul. I know that guy. Everybody in the church knows that guy. And, and I thought maybe for a minute, God, that you told me that it was Saul of Tarsus you wanted me to go to. Surely, surely, you, surely I heard you wrong. Surely you said something, something different. It would, be like, it would be like Jesus coming to, to one of you in this room today and saying, listen, I want you to go down there to the Circle K. And when you get to the Circle K, I want you to meet up with this guy. There's this guy, he's going to be, he's going to be waiting for you, and I want you, to, I want you to meet him. I want you to invite him into your home. And if you want to call him by name, his name is Osama bin Laden, okay? And he's probably going to have a turban on. He's going to look like a ZZ top beard. That's the guy you're going to want to touch base with. You want to invite him into your home. You want to invite him to church with you. want to get him to come. Like, what? What? Wrong guy. God, you got the wrong guy. But the Lord said to him, go, get to stepping, get moving, move your feet, be gone. The same go that we get in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples. He'll use the same word here and say, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, 
the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell, fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized because we saw just in the last chapter that's the normal response to putting your faith in Jesus is to publicly profess that here's my new life in Christ. And so what was it that brought Saul to faith in Jesus Christ? What were the, what were the steps? What was, what was going on in Saul's life? What were, the, what were the goads, so to speak, in Saul's life that led him to this moment where he would call Jesus Lord? We'd call Him God. The very one that He would deny. The first thing you see when you hit, hit the text is that God was after him. Like God was pursuing him. God was after Saul. There were, there were goads or proddings, if you will. And, and some of you, you might be experiencing something like this today. Like you might have some unanswered questions about life, some unanswered questions about death and about, about this whole religious thing and about God and all this. And so, so you might be in the room today, right? And you might be here like, I, I'm, like I'm, I don't know anything about what you're talking about here, Blake, but I just have some questions about a few things that I want to kind of get clear in my head. That could very well be a means of grace in your life that God has given you that he would set you right here today. I can't promise you that all your answers will be given to you today, that all your questions will be able to be resolved today. But just the fact that you came through the doors could be a means of grace for you. Maybe you've seen or experienced in a Christian's brother or sister or, or, or a friend of yours who might be a, a follower of Jesus just kind of go through maybe a really tough time, a really hard time, and you're just like, they're kind of doing it with joy and you don't even understand that. You're like, how in the world are they doing that? How are they even still remotely interested in the things of God whenever they're going through this tough time? I might, you might have someone in your life like that and that might be a means of God's grace for you. That he's allowing you to see that, that he's prodding you, that he's just trying to turn you and turn your head to face him. Regardless of what it is, there's not a single person in this room who's not here by accident. Like you are here on purpose today. God has you in the seat today where you are sitting for a reason. It's not an accident. I don't know if you were invited here today. I don't know if you just kind of came in because you wanted to check things out, but I'm here to tell you it could be a means of grace in your life right now that you're in this, in this room with us. I thank God for you. I thank God that you're here. And so sometimes these goads can be real painful. These proddings can be somewhat painful, right? That I came to know Jesus in this, the darkest season of my life, man, when I was hurting the most, when I had so much pain and so much on me that there was nowhere else to turn. And that might have been a, that might have been a means of grace to you also. C.S. Lewis, a lot of you have heard of him. I don't know if you're all familiar with the, the, his background or not, but he was an atheist uh, professor at the University of Oxford. And when he came to faith in Christ, uh, one of the things that he would write a lot about after he started following Jesus was that he could now see how God had been pursuing him. Like, he wasn't able to see it until he came to that point of surrender. And when he would look back, he's like, man, God was after me. He was coming after me and there was all these little things along the way that he was using to, to turn my heart toward him. And he would say, and he wrote a, a, a book called Surprised by Joy, a little, uh, little small article, I guess, more or less. And he had recounted this. He would, he would refer to himself as the most dejected, 
reluctant convert in all of England. He said, I was drug into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance at escape. So when when he looked back after Jesus had kind of intersected with his life, he was able to see how good God had been to him. Even in the tough times, even in the dark times, whenever he thought God was a billion miles away from him, he was able to see that God was right there with him and that God was steering and, and, and using those moments in his life to, to bring him to himself. And so many times these proddings, they're, they're painful, but listen to me, it's not punishment. Like God's not punishing you. God does not hate you. He loves you. And, and some of the signs that you, uh, 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 what, what are some of these signs that, that, that you're being made new is like you feel like God is pursuing you, like he's after you. I forget who it was. It might have been uh, maybe A.W. Tozer that said he referred to God as like the hound of heaven. Like he, he just wouldn't get off of this case. He was coming after him, constantly chasing after him. And that's what brought Saul to faith. And it's what always will, will always be a result of anyone coming to faith primarily is that God came after you, that God has been pursuing you. And so I don't even know what season of life you're in right now. Uh, if you, if you, are, you feel like you're in a time of, of trial or hardship or, or trouble or brokenness or sadness, I don't know where you're at, but it could very well be a gift from God that he's just trying to get you to hold on to him. To, to reach out to Him. So, so don't discount the fact that God pursues you, and He does so sometimes in these painful ways. And as He comes to you, as He, as he pursues you and chases after you, you, you come to this realization that, that you're blind. See, before then, you don't, really, you don't really know that you're blind. It's God's grace in your life that, that you get to see that. And we get this idea from Saul being blinded, this picture that this is what's like being separated from Christ. It's being blinded like the, 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 the enemy has blinded the minds, blinded our eyes, and we're deceived. And there, there are usually uh, two kinds of spiritual blindness that, that, that I'm used to seeing and, and the one that I was probably most susceptible to up until I was 23 years old was this irreligious blindness, right? This, this idea that, listen, my way is way better than God's way. That I don't really need God. I'm doing just fine on my own without God. I, I, I might have shared this story with you guys before, um, but whenever I was 17 years old, again, at that point in my life, probably very, very, very far away from God. Didn't grow up in church, didn't have any religious background, any foundation, anything. I, just, I did grow up in the Bible Belt, so I knew that like church was a good thing, and that's about all I knew about it. But I can remember we were, we were, it was like 4th of July weekend, and man, we had this big old thing going on where just, just a, it was a big party going on, and they had this group of people who were walking around. And they were just asking people if they could have a minute to speak with them about Jesus. Now, I was completely out of my mind. And I won't ever forget that day for the rest of my life. I didn't meet Jesus that day. I said, yeah, that's good. Like, I respect you guys. It's, it's real brave of you to be walking out here wanting to talk about Jesus to people who are just drunk and stoned and just it, a mess, right? That's, but I'll get there one day, maybe. Today, I, I'm, not in, I'm not in any need of your God. I'm not in any need of your Jesus. This irreligious blindness that goes on and out of a sinful heart, 
you think, you know what, I'd rather be in charge because I believe that I think I know better than God. Like, so I'm going to take charge of this. And, and usually, usually, when first off, it, things seem kind of fun, seem, seem going well, things are going great. I'm kind of being my own God. I'm kind of a little bit smarter than God. So before I was a believer, I would hear people say this all the time. Like, sin is deadly, man. Sin is not fun. Sin will hurt you. And like, before I was a believer, I'm like, dude, you must not be doing it right. It's not that at all. But right, so, so I was blind, right? I was blind to, to everything that was going on around me. And I would hear this over and over and what I believe what people were trying to tell me is that one day, Blake, you're going to wake up and you're going to realize that, man, you have, you have let a lot of stuff, a lot of water under the bridge, man. That you have been deceived. There's this string of brokenness. There's this string of chaos that, that's, that's, that's around you. This darkness. And inevitably, I would come to realize that. That God began to do a work in me. He began to prod me, so to speak, using all these little moments it started with just maturity, just being a dad, figuring out how to do that. Of, of just finding friends who actually liked Jesus. That was hard to find, believe it or not. I don't know if it's hard for you to find today or not, but it was hard to find where, where friends, people would actually like Jesus and me. Like that was, that was difficult to find. And these were all means of grace in my life. These were all means of, of grace that God would use to, to call me unto Himself. He was, he was pursuing me, and I didn't even know it at the time. I couldn't even see it at the time. I'd been treating God like He was my enemy, and He was not my enemy. But I was treating Him that way. Like, God, I don't want you to come this way because you're going to mess up my stuff. I've got things going on. I'm in control, and you're going to ask some things of me. I'm going to have to surrender some things, and I'm going to lose control. And, and you just want to hurt me, God. You just want to take things from me, God. That's where I was at. It's this irreligious blindness. And some of you are probably in this category. And, and, and if you are, what I hope and pray for today is that you would stop kicking. Stop, stop kicking against the goad. Realize that it could very well be a means of grace in, in your life. And, it, and honestly, it's, it's not something that you're going to realize until, until you put your faith in Jesus, right? That the moment that the scales fall off my eyes, I got a whole new v vision and a view of world now and how it works and how God's moving and working. But I know a lot of people that's religiously blind too. I wasn't so much. I might fall into that category a little bit today where I think that I could, I could be good enough to earn God's approval that, that if I just keep trying really hard and working really hard and, and keeping all the rules that God's going to accept me. I'm going to win all the Bible trivia. I'm going to go to all the, the, the church meetings and, and I'm going to be at church every Sunday and I'm going to do all the right things with hopes that God might just turn and smile. That's religious blindness also. And it's, it's still just as deadly. The problem with our good deeds is that they're just hypocritical. Like it's just the problem with our good deeds is that we're doing them to cover up the, the, the real condition of our heart, the real shape of our heart. Because if we're all really honest, every one of us in this room, there's some pretty embarrassing things in here. At least it is for me. Or we would often operate out of this selfishness. We're doing stuff for pride. We're trying to prove ourselves to others. Look how good I am. 
Look how good of a Christian I am. God's really close to me because I memorized this book of the Bible this month. I must be way more spiritual than than the rest of the, the people, right? And in contrast to all of that is the gospel. The, the good news of Jesus totally blows this out of the water. This idea of you're good enough. You're sharp enough, man. You're, you're, you're religious enough. You're doing good things. You're keeping all the rules. The gospel is a gift of grace. Jesus Christ dying in our place. Jesus Christ taking our place, paying the penalty for our sin, and just clothing us in His righteousness. Saying, I'm righteous, you are not. I will take your unrighteousness and you can have my righteousness. That's God's grace. What a gift. And it has nothing to do with what we can do. It has nothing to do with how we can, can work up good deeds and, and cause God, God to smile on us. And when you've been given this sight, when you see this, like Paul experienced, it changed everything, right? When he was given sight, when the scales fell from his eyes, his whole world was changed from that point on. He was blind, but now he could see. And when you've been given sight, there's this sense of wonder, right? There's this sense of awe and, and, and just amazement when you, when you finally get sight. You think about someone who's been walking around blind for years and years and years and then all of a sudden has sight. You don't think their world's going to be blown up? And that's what we see here. This sense of wonder and instead of this, this idea of entitlement and pride. Well, you know what? Of course God accepts me and approves of me. Like I'm better than the other guy, right? I can look in the room and probably measure myself to someone and say, well, I'm better than that guy. So surely God likes me. It kicks that idea out of the water. And he was filled with wonder. And he would constantly say throughout the New Testament, I cannot believe God saved me. I cannot believe He saved me. And that's the, that's the posture of a Christian who's received the gospel wholeheartedly is to walk around in wonder and amazement just like, how in the world did God save me? How in the world is He he's, he's still with me after the things that I've done, the things that I've thought, the things that are in my heart? So Paul was filled with this kind of wonder because he now had sight. And so I want to be straight with you and maybe a little transparent. Um... I'm kind of a disappointment to myself, and I'm not looking for sympathy or anything. I'm just wanting to share with you a little bit that, like, I'm, I just feel like I would have progressed farther by now in my Christian walk. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, I've been a believer for a handful of years now. I just felt like I would be further down the road. But you know what? I, I don't love to pray all day. Like, it's work for me to do that sometimes, Right? And I see in Scripture where it's absolutely necessary, and I see brothers and sisters who have been given the, the gift and the passion to pray. And I'm just like, you know what, it's kind of worked for me. And I feel like I would have been a little bit further along, right? I have self-control issues. And I felt like those would be gone by now. I felt like, like Jesus would have worked that out of me by now. I struggle with materialism. My security is in the things that I have, and those are the things that I sometimes tend to worship. You'd be surprised at the jealousy in my heart and how that comes out. And I just thought, man, I would have been past that. I would have grown past that by now. So half the time, my love for God is weak and cold. I'm just being honest with you. I want to... 
and, and what it does is not discourage me, but it brings me to this place of wonder and amazement. Say, God, how in the world can I possibly be saved? With, this, with, with what I know is going on in here, how in the world can I possibly be saved? How in the world are you still so receptive of me? How in the world? So it's this place of wonder. It's like now I can see that, man, I'm utterly hopeless without Jesus Christ. And so we walk around with this posture of just wonder when we can see. And if I pulled the room, I bet I'm not alone. I'm the guy with the microphone right now. I get it. But I bet I'm not alone in some of these things that I still struggle with when I feel like I should have probably grown out of them by now. And in fact, most people would measure their spiritual maturity by, by how perfect their spiritual fruit is. Like, I have excelled in patience. And so, I'm further along. I pray every day, five times a day for an hour. So I'm way better than Blake. Like, I got that part down. And you are if you do, by the way. I can't, again, it's, it's just not something that's in me to do that. Or you might be the, the, the evangelist in the room where you like, like, I share the gospel with everybody that breathes. And so I'm, I'm down the road a bit. I'm mature. And the problem is that, that on this side of heaven, we have our sinful flesh that we all have to walk with. That we all have to deal with. And we'll constantly be discouraged and disappointed if we look in, inward. We'll constantly fight against this. You know what? I know these things about me, but they don't cripple me. Because I know what's in my heart. I know that I still struggle with these things and then I go through them. And so God always wants us looking outside of ourselves to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what he's looking for. Uh, we have been clothed with his righteousness, with his goodness and his deeds, not our inward progress whatsoever. Let's please not stand on that. That's, that's a real, real uh, shaky foundation. And God will, in fact, let me say this, he might sovereignly allow us to struggle with this indwelling sin Right? Because it points us to His grace. It points us to His, His goodness. And we can grow in wonder that, wow, man, you, you, you sure I'm saved? Like, you sure that's about me, God? You sure that Christ died for me? Do you know what I've done? And when you've been given sight, you have the freedom to be transparent. I can sit here before you and tell you these things about me, and I'm not embarrassed about it. I'm really not. I'm a little bit ashamed of myself, but I'm not embarrassed or discouraged about it. I can be transparent now. Because guess what? All of you cats are in the same boat with me. Every one of you. Every single one of you. And Saul would, from this point on, he would constantly admit his failings. Throughout all of his writings, he's just, he's going on like, man, I am the chief sinner. Like, there's no one that can out me. He would write some of that, and he would say, you know what? Like, I'm admitting my, my failures. I, I look at the law, and I see that it says not to covet. Guess what I do? I covet. I do it just because the law said not to do it. That's how wicked I am. That's how messed up I am. Thanks be to God. That would be his only... I, I'm amazed at what God has done. I'm amazed that he's still with me after even all of those things. Even after I would see his goodness and say, I'll do the opposite. And I'll try to find some enjoyment and satisfaction in that. 
And so Paul, he doesn't want people admiring him. He doesn't want people admiring his flesh. What he wants are people who are running after Jesus. And that's who he's pointing through throughout, throughout the New Testament. And when the, when the scales are removed, when we have our sight, when we, when we have our eyes, then we're all about grace and we're all about generosity. And that's, the, that's our measure. Uh, uh, it would say here in 1 Corinthians, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the guy who penned those words was once a murderer. He was a terrorist. The guy who wrote that. That's what happens when you lose the scales, when you see when, when the, the blinders have been pulled away from your eyes, he would previously bind his enemies and drag them off to, to prison. And now he's saying, you know what? I will gladly go to hell for them if I could. I would give my life away for their sake if I could do that. If that would be a possibility, he would say. Because those who believe and embrace the gospel become like the gospel. They become the good news. And gospel people are kind to one another. Gospel people are patient with one another. They care for one another. They forgive one another because that's what the gospel is. And that's what the gospel did for Saul. And it did something to him that religion could never, ever accomplish. He was the most religious man that we read about in the New Testament and it couldn't accomplish that. He wouldn't have been able to pin 1 Corinthians chapter 13 without the gospel. He couldn't have done it. Religion wouldn't have led him there. So it changed his heart. And it isn't a beautiful thing that his past didn't disqualify him from God's grace. Right? That was my hang-up. That was my problem. Like, God, I want to come to you. I want to receive your grace. I know that you're pursuing me, and I know that you're showing me yourself. But do you know at all what I've done? Do you know what all's back there in the back seat? The wake of hurt and darkness and brokenness? Do you know all the people that I've hurt? Do you know all the, all the things that I've done? And look at Saul, and all of that didn't disqualify him from receiving God's grace. He was a murderer. And his conversion would completely blow Ananias' mind. Like, what? Just, just shocked. So much so that Jesus had to say, hey, go. Go, I chose him. He's going to be an instrument. He's going to spread the gospel in places far and wide. It's going to be crazy. So you've got to go. You've got to get moving. Get stepping. Because real grace is always, it's a scandal. It's, it's, it, it doesn't fit with our, our psyche. And so there are a couple things about the gospel that are really, really difficult to believe. And, and it's this idea that, do you, you know, do you believe that you're so bad that Jesus has to die for you? Like, that's a hard thing to believe, right? But that's what we're confronted with when the gospel comes at us. Are you, do you believe that you're bad enough that Jesus Christ had to die for you? Like, he had to die for your wickedness? Or, the other thing that we're confronted with with the gospel is that 
do you believe that Jesus was so gracious that he would gladly do that for you? Like those are the two things that you have to embrace in order to understand the gospel that, that yes, you are that bad. And yes, he has come to save you and he, he can and he, he will save. Conversion kind of cuts us with this, with this double-edged sword, right? It's like I am worse than I ever dreamed and Jesus is more gracious than I'd ever hoped for. That's the gospel. And we have to get to that place. And while you and I were at our worst, Christ came for us and he willingly laid down his life to save us. And so your past does not disqualify you from God's grace. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where you come from today. I don't know what's been going on yesterday. But you are not disqualified from God's grace. Saul the terrorist, the professional Christian murderer, was not so far away that God couldn't save him. And his past absolutely didn't disqualify him from God's mission forward, right? We've got the whole New Testament to show that. We've got history to, to tell us that. In verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God took the greatest enemy of the church, the most fierce persecutor of the church, with the blood of the saints on his hands, and set him before kings, set him before prominent people with the message of good news about Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world. So never forget this, that the church's greatest missionary was once the, the church's greatest enemy. And so what makes you feel disqualified? Are you in this room today and you feel disqualified? Like, yeah, that's good for so-and-so, but I'm not there. What makes you feel disqualified? Is it some horrible, embarrassing mistake that you've made in the past? Something that you're still kind of just having to deal with? It's just a wake of hurt still kind of follows you around? Have you been thrown in jail? Is your marriage just all jacked up? What is it that you think disqualifies you? Are you struggling with the flesh right now? Guess what? Join the club. We all do. Do you think that you're too bad for God to use you? Do you think that you're too far gone? I've got great news for you. You're worse. Like you're worse. I know it don't sound like great news, but what makes it such great news is that these are the things, the things that like make you bad are the very things that God will typically use as a means of redemption. And so it's not, it's, it's, you're way far worse than you think you are. And God still comes after you. He still chases after you. And he would, so Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians, Blessed be the God of, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So basically God allows us to be afflicted so that we might comfort those who who with the same kind of comfort, comfort that we received in those times that we were afflicted and received his comfort, right? Like, so he's just kind of showing himself through us to others. And so the hurt, the things that make me completely disqualified from God are usually the things that God will absolutely use to make himself look beautiful to someone else. And so you can be used by God and you will be used by God. Your story, it might be a dark, broken, sad story, but God redeems every single thing. 
And your past is not something for you to just kind of throw out and try to forget about, but it's a means of grace maybe for someone else that God might use in your life. Sometimes the sin that you struggle with and the pain that you go through, they make you uniquely qualified in a way that a lot of other brothers and sisters aren't qualified to be a means of redemption and grace to someone else. And so church, let's beg God. This morning, let's beg God to refresh our hearts, to remember the gospel and to be amazed by his grace. Recall the moment. I want you to think about this. For those of you who are in Christ, I want you to recall right now for me the moment that you laid your yes down to Jesus. I want you to think about that moment. And I want you to think about everything that happened in that moment. I can remember it like it was yesterday. And for the first time, I heard the gospel in a way that, that drove a stake right in my heart. It said, Blake, all the things that you're trying to do to get right, you can't do, and Jesus has to do them for you. That's the message that I heard. That's, there's freedom found there. There's, there's a lot of freedom found there. And so recall this moment. And in that moment, as you think about that moment, I want you to make the, the same level of commitment to Jesus that you made then. So recall that moment and recommit to Him in that moment. This grace, this gift that God has given us, this is the fountain from which we drink, and we can never, ever, ever walk away from that. Never. We only go deeper and deeper into the gospel. You don't, you don't have the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ, and grow away from that. You grow deeper in the gospel. That's what, that's what sustains us. And so for the skeptic or the unbeliever in the room, the one who says, you know what? I got a lot of questions, Blake. That's why I'm here today. I'm not sure of a lot of things. I got a lot of conversations I've got to have with God. I don't even know if I'm right with God right now, Blake, to be honest with you. I'm not sure about any of that. Do you see how God's been pursuing you? Can you recall these moments in, in your past where God has continued to, to pursue you, to, to use a, a kind character, someone who's loved you in spite of you, someone who's, who's shown you some kind of kindness? Has He been using means in your life that He's been pointing you to Him? Do you believe that He can save you? Do you believe that Jesus can save you? Do you believe that you're you're way worse than you think you are, but that His grace is way more powerful than any of your bad habits or any of your hang-ups. So come to Jesus. All you who labor and are heavy laden. All you who are tired and weary, and He will give you rest. And come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come. Come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's free. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's pray.
Lord, we need your grace. We need to be reminded of the grace we've received, and we need to have a revelation this morning of the grace that's afforded to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray over every single person in this room right now, whether believer or skeptic or unbeliever or doubtful, that we could be assured this morning, Father, that you have crossed over mountains to save us, to offer your love through your Son Christ to us, and we are not so far away from you that you can't reach us. So it is with this hopeful expectation, Father, this morning, that for those of us who have a story about meeting Jesus would just become all brand new to us this morning. That regardless of how we've wandered and strayed away, that we would be reminded of the grace that was first shown to us in the moment that Jesus rescued us. And bring us back to that place of commitment and love and grace that, you, that you've shown us. Remind us. Cause us to, to remember the depths at which you reached to save us. Lord, for those in this room who would have a, a list of questions a mile long about you, about their relationship with you, about their standing with you, and about who you are. Father, I pray that your word be so crystal clear to them this morning. Of the level of grace that could be afforded them in Christ Jesus. Father, we are all disqualified from your presence. Thank you for Jesus Christ, that through his qualifications we can stand before you free and able to see with sight, knowing that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone, and that all of our attempts at good works are just polluted garments. They're a heap of garbage, and they're an offense to who you are. So forgive us when we try to present that to you as our as our entry card, as a, as a way to try to make you happy with us, as if what Christ has done is not enough. So this, this time is yours, Father. I pray that the Spirit work in, in this room and in the hearts of every single person in this room. I thank you, Father, for what you're doing. I thank you that, that you're showing us who you are in your word. Father, forgive us when we go anywhere else to look for you. So it is in Christ that we place our hope, and it is in Christ that we ask all these things. Amen.